Welcome to the Cap City Church podcast. This is the recording of our Sunday message. We pray that you are encouraged and challenged as you listen to this. Enjoy. There are some passages of Scripture that are um, so significant, so renowned, so well-known, um, but, but more than that, carry something really weighty about them. Um, and the one we're going to look at this morning, and, and in fact, much of what we'll look at over the, the coming weeks as we uh, look at just the, the last 24 hours of the earthly life of Jesus, um, there is so much weight and significance. Uh, and just as the Gospel of John slows down and zooms in on these moments, uh, that's what we'll be doing now in the run-up to Easter, just those, the, those final moments of Jesus' life. We want to focus on them because the reality is that there is so much depth to what is going on here. And, uh, and my, my prayer this morning for myself as I've been preparing and thinking about this is, is just, just, just God, let us, let us drink deeply from your spirit. Let us catch something of the significance of your word here. Uh, because when we, when we read through these parts of scripture, it's not just, you know, Jesus teach me something new. It's not just God, you know, encourage me and, and lift me up and give me the, the, the boost that I need to keep going for this next week. But there are moments in scripture, and if we're a follower of Jesus, we, we reflect on the life and the actions of Jesus. And we get into moments like this and where we, we, we almost feel the emotions and the pain of Jesus. And so my prayer is that, that, that God speaks to us. And, uh, and, and my prayer for myself was, God, just allow me to communicate something of the, the, the depth of who you are and what you have done for us. So if you've got a Bible, uh, turn to John chapter 18. Uh, I'm going to read John 18, 1 through to 11. It says, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples, crossed the Kidron Valley, onto the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who had betrayed uh, Jesus, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And he asked them, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, ever eager to do something in a situation. Do you know, you've, you meet some people like that, and, and it doesn't matter what the situation calls, uh, they are ready to do something to be involved. And so Simon Peter, with, uh, who had a sword, goodness knows, you, you think the followers of Jesus, you don't think these guys walking around with swords, do you? You think of the 12 disciples, you think sandals, you think long flowing hair, uh, you don't think a bunch of guys carrying swords around. It completely changes your perspective of Jesus' entourage. It says, then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant. Obviously, Peter is, is the guy who, when a fight breaks out, picks on the littlest guy, throws a punch, and then runs away. 
goodness knows why he strikes the high priest's servant. He says he cut off his right ear. Very, very particular. It was the right ear, not the left ear. I don't know if there's theological significance to that one. We'll, we'll see if we can find something. But just in case you're wondering, the servant's name was Malchus. Again, good to have the detail. We'll move on from there. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? How many of you are preparation people? Just to show hands, how many of you, if, if you've got a, a trip coming up, or if you're going out, you know, you are ready, you're planned, you've got the itinerary, you're packed uh, days before, and there's a few of you, uh, I love you people, you're nothing like me. Um, and I, I kind of stand in awe in your ability to, to think more than, you know, than, than two minutes into the future and be ready for it. Uh, some of us, hands up if you're a bit more like me, um, you just kind of, you go, we'll wing it. You know, we'll just make it happen. We'll get there and we'll see. I'm glad that there's... There's a couple of us. <laughs> but that, that idea of being prepared for what is coming down the line. I, I remember when I was 17 years old doing the Duke of Edinburgh Award. Um, loads of different things involved in that. But it culminated in this four-day trek through the Welsh mountains. Uh, and it's a challenge I remember particularly well for two reasons. The first one is this, is I got horribly sunburnt on the first day. Uh, and so I spent the, the rest of the, the, the couple of days just throwing up every opportunity that I had uh, and covering myself head to toe in, in whatever kind of creams or lotions I could get my hands on uh, just in order to get through uh, the, the end of this walk. And the second one was this, is, is I remember um, this strange experience that as we were walking through uh, various mountains or terrain or fields or rivers, we had spent so much time planning and you can tell that I wasn't in charge because we'd spent so much time planning. We'd looked through the route where we would be going. We'd, we'd visited a couple of the sites uh, that we would walk uh, in advance. So much preparation was put into this trip that it, it, it felt like as we were walking into it, we knew it somehow. That we knew uh, where, where the hills were going to go down or when, that, when a, a, a kind of a steep incline was coming, what would be around the corner. We'd studied the maps. We'd spent time thinking about it. That it felt like we were just walking into what we had already prepared for. And the first thing I want us to think about this is how is that prayer prepares us. That as followers of Jesus, as those who, who live and follow his example, it is prayer that prepares us. The chapter begins, recognize that when Jesus finished praying, and the last several chapters of John have, have really been Jesus' prayers, Jesus' final prayers with his disciples. We know that from the other Gospels, uh, as he travels into Gethsemane, as he arrives in this garden, he spends further time in, in, in anguish, in, in intense prayer before his Father in preparation for what is about to come. So often, we are content to think that prayer is asking God for the things that we want. And, and, and it is that. We do that. We're encouraged. Church, can I just, if you ever feel guilty about your prayers, that you should be praying a particular way and you're stuck just asking God for stuff, God, God tells us to ask for the things that we need. God encourages us to ask from Him uh, as a good Father who loves His children, that we're encouraged to think about prayer that way. But that is not the only way we're shown or taught to pray. 
Hopefully we see prayer as the primary way that we build and develop relationship with God. Prayer is the day-to-day conversation that deepens intimacy in relationship. That prayer is the equivalent of that, that, that sit-down chat with a friend, that, that time spent catching up with each other, getting to know them, allowing them to be part of our lives. But it is more than that too. Prayer, as Jesus shows us here, is how we prepare ourselves for all that God is calling us to and calling us through. Just as Ephesians 6 talks about uh, the armor of God and encourages believers to put on that spiritual armor to prepare us for everything that we're going to face, the spiritual battles that we're about to walk into. The prayer is the, is, the, is the way that we prepare that ground to step out in faith for all that God has called us to. We're not just encouraged by Jesus to pray for our needs, and like I said, we are encouraged to pray for our needs, but for God's kingdom and will to be made real in the world around us. In that great prayer, as Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. It, Jesus teaches them, this is, this is meant to be like your bedrock, basic, uh, kind of entry-level prayer that kind of covers everything that is needed. Je- Jesus' disciples say, teach us how to pray. And this is what Jesus instructs them to do. That Jesus invites us to enter into the battleground that is this world and to bring God's kingdom down to allow God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And prayer is the place where that battle is prepared for. Prayer is the place where our hearts are prepared and the the path and the world around us is influenced. Prayer is the place where we call down the kingdom of God into the world around us. And for Jesus here, all that is about to come, the, the, the agony that he's going to experience... All of the, everything that comes next, Jesus has prepared for in prayer. Church, if it was important for Jesus, can I encourage you? It is important for us. Can I encourage you? Don't, don't just allow your prayer times to be those, those momentary uh, spots in your day or your week when you stop and say, oh, I've forgotten to pray. God, help me through this. Or God, give me this. Allow prayer to be the, the launch point into seeing God's kingdom at work in the world around you. We see in this passage the purpose of why Jesus came. And it says, he he travels across the Kidron Valley into a garden named Gethsemane. Now, I love gardens. My garden is a total mess. Uh, I'm at that point in life where, uh, where I neither have the time nor the patience to tend to my garden in the way that it ought to be. It is covered in kids' toys. Uh, it has not been mowed since way before the winter. There is a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that's just overgrowing. Uh, and it's one of these jobs that is going to be huge when eventually I can't stand it anymore and it just has to get done. And then the worst part is the colony of spiders that lives in the kids' playhouse at the end of the garden that, that somebody is going to have to evict at some point. But there is something wonderful about spending time in a well-loved, well-kept garden. You know, think, about, think about times walking through the grounds of a large estate. 
and the, and the well-kept, beautifully, immaculately kept gardens that they have there. Just that sense of peace and of connection to the, the natural world around you. And, and for Jesus, this was a familiar place for him. It says, Jesus left with his disciples. They crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now, the, 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 the nature of the language used there is this is probably a walled garden because it talks about going in and going out, and the way that it uses the words in Greek would imply that kind of garden. More to the point, it was probably a private garden, and therefore somebody allowed Jesus access. This is a place that Jesus could go whilst in Jerusalem to escape from, from crowds and business. They, they didn't have the kind of the open public gardens that we have of today. This would have been owned by somebody. And it says Judas, uh, the one who betrayed him, John really likes to nail that point home in his gospel, just in case you're wondering. It says Judas knew the place because Jesus had often met there with the disciples. So Jesus goes to this garden in the midst of, of the turmoil, the frustration. He's, you know, he's been surrounded by his disciples, his close friends. He's been teaching them, encouraging them, praying for them. And in the last few moments that he has before everything that is about to happen transpires, he goes to a garden. And what is fascinating is the name of the garden, Gethsemane, uh, it literally just means oil press. It was probably an olive garden, a place where lots of olive groves were and, and, and grew, and so they might have had a press there. And, and what you do with olives is you stick them in a great big press and you crush them down and the oil comes out. And the imagery there is, is significant. Oil was a symbol of the blessing of God, the anointing of God. It was synonymous with God's spirit moving. And so for Jesus to enter a place, a place of pressure, a place of turmoil, a place of, 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 of pressing down, and yet that is the place where the blessing of God would flow. And the symmetry and the symbolism at this point in John's gospel is significant. Because it was in a garden that the setting uh, for, for the beginning of humanity takes place. In the book of Genesis, God creates humanity and he places them in a garden. It's in a garden that humanity falls to temptation. The temptation to believe a lie over trusting that God is for them. To take their own path rather than the path that God has laid out for them. That through this rebellion, all humanity is separated from life-giving purpose and relationship with God that they were made for. This is, this is how the Bible sets up the problems in this world. As the Bible looks to explain that the, the reality that we see around us, the disconnect that we have from each other, the turmoil that we experience through life, that, that level of disconnect between us and God. And so it seems fitting that in another garden, when faced with the challenges of trusting God in that moment, staring down the temptation to walk away and choose your own path, instead standing there taking on responsibility for the whole human race. The second Adam, as the Apostle Paul calls him, makes a resolute decision to say, not my will, but yours that his absolute trust and obedience to the Father results in humanity being given back that relationship, that purpose, and that life. And this is, this is why Jesus came, and the symbolism here is significant. Uh, and I wonder whether Jesus does this intentionally because it focuses his, his attention on what is about to happen. 
That it says in Hebrews 12, to fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That in that moment, Jesus, knowing what is about to happen, focuses his attention and his mind on the reality that just as in the first garden, humanity fell and lost that relationship with God. In, in another garden, the new human, the, as G.K. Chesterton calls him, the everlasting man, stands in that place for all humanity and restores the relationship that was broken in the first garden. And what we see next is the powerful example of Jesus for us in that situation. How many of you have been in that situation when you just feel like you have lost control of your life? Just that, that everything is flying out of control. That, that anything that you do seems to make it worse, not better. Uh, and whenever these things happen, inevitably, when you are already feeling like you've lost control, that, you, that, you're not, uh, that you've not got a handle on life anymore, something else will guaranteed will come in and just make it worse. Anyone else had that experience? You feel like you've already lost control of everything, and then something else happens to make it even worse. And you think, surely it can't get any worse than this, and it almost always does. The feeling that things are slipping through our hands like sand. And it could be easy to see Jesus' situation and think that, that everything that he has come for, everything that he's looking to accomplish was, was about to be taken from him. And he was shown that this is not the case. It says, Jesus knowing all that was going to happen. How great would it be if we had that insight? That if we knew, I don't know, sometimes we feel like it would be great if we knew what was about to happen. Or if we knew what was coming around the corner. It wouldn't be incredible to have that kind of insight. And I think the problem with thinking that way is, is sometimes we think it would be great to know what's coming around the corner, whereas actually if we knew what was coming around the corner, it would terrify us, that we would run in the opposite direction, that we would do everything we could to get away from it. And the, the problem is, is I think even, even thinking that, oh, knowing what comes next will make it better is not true. But it says, Jesus, knowing what was about to happen, he went out and asked them, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he. And I don't know how much to, to make of this point because there's there's huge divide in terms of what is going on here. But, but Jesus, as he has done repeatedly through John's gospel, uh, uses this expression, I am. And there are seven significant moments in the gospel of John. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I am the, the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, you know, all the, I am the bread of life. Jesus uses this expression, I am. And he very intentionally chooses his phrasing, and it's difficult to know exactly how it's going on, because obviously Jesus would most likely have been speaking in Aramaic, and we get a Greek translation of what Jesus says. But there's a strong correlation that when Jesus says, I am, he's using the same expression that God uses when he reveals himself to Moses and gives the divine name, I am, that I am. And that Jesus is evoking here this, this, this incredible understanding that he and the Father occupy the same position, that he and the Father are one. And it's, it's a potentially that Jesus, as he's approached by, uh, by this entourage, by these armed guards and these, these people that wish him ill, he stands up and says, I am. And it says, they drew back and fell to the ground. And there's a whole host of, of interpretations of what is going on here. Um, and, and, and I'll give you the, kind of the two 
most reasonable ones that I see. Either, not, either, either Jesus in this moment has, has manifested something of the, the, the authority and power of God in that statement that, that, that those who see it experience something, what is often called a theophany, a moment in which the, the glory of God breaks into the reality of our world, and they cannot help be knocked back by it. The alternative is, is, is when, when coming for this man, Jesus of Nazareth, they come at night, they come with armed guards, they come with, with torches and with weapons, and yet he stands up in front of them boldly saying, I'm the one that you're looking for. They are so taken aback by the boldness and the confidence that they are just so uncertain of what is going on and they are tripping over themselves. One thing that all the Gospels present, but John especially does here, is that Jesus is not out of control. Jesus is not the victim of the will and schemes of others, but Jesus steps into this moment whilst it looks like chaos, whilst it looks like everything is falling apart and he is losing control. Jesus is never out of control, but he is following the plan that God has for him, and he is, he is beyond confident in that moment. And you think, how, how can he have that, that kind of confidence and, and peace that allows him to respond without boldness when people are looking to take him away? When he's about to be arrested, he's, going to be, he's being betrayed by a man for years and years he spent time with that we would have called a friend. He's about to be handed over to be mocked, to be abused, to be tortured, and to be executed in the most horrific and painful way that human minds had devised. How does he have this confidence? And I think we've referred to it before when looking at Jesus in the Gospel of John, but his identity and his purpose were secure. Jesus was bold in the face of his opponents, the type of boldness that comes with knowing your purpose and knowing your identity. As a result, Jesus lays down the, the ultimate example of how we face trials. And there's a, there's a challenge sometimes. There's this disconnect between seeing how Jesus responded to situations and kind of go, well, that's all good and well for Jesus. He was God in the flesh. So he could respond perfectly to everything that he came across. And we think that's good for him. But for us, when we get into these situations, you know, we're, we're scared. We're, we're, you know, we're filled with fear. We're filled with uncertainty. We, you know, we don't respond with confidence because we don't know what is coming down the track. And yet the reality is, Scripture says, the same Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the grave lives within us. That, that I'm convinced when we look at the New Testament, when we look at what Jesus did for us, Jesus doesn't come down like Superman, invincible and invulnerable. But Jesus comes down and lives completely human. That, that, that I believe that Jesus experiences life in the way that we do and yet without sin. That Jesus lives a life as we do, but empowered by the Holy Spirit. That Jesus lays down that this is the way that his followers are to live. That we don't simply look to his example to emulate, although we should, but we look to his example as this is how true humanity should operate. Not as some impossible, unattainable standard, but one that Jesus, as our rabbi, instructs us to follow in his example. And so Jesus here, 
demonstrates how we face trials, how we can face trials when we lean in to the Spirit of God at work within us. Not lashing out in anger or desperation, but facing down the challenge with grace, with control, with intention, and with confidence. That as you look through, as we've been looking through John's gospel, there's a boldness about everything Jesus said. That if anyone else tried to claim the things that he claimed, we, he would be laughed at as being ridiculous. How is it possible that someone could say that? And yet Jesus claims these incredible things with boldness and with confidence because he knows who he is and where he has come from. Jesus has just been betrayed by a man he considered a friend. A man who had spent years and years with him. A man he would in, had included in his closest circle. You've got to appreciate that Jesus didn't walk around just with, with the 12 of them and that was it, but Jesus had this huge following that people would follow him up and down the country and, and certain people would gather and there would be crowds of, of people all around him, but it was the 12 that were the closest to him. This had to be painful. Jesus was not immune from the reality of that pain, but knowing what he was there to do gave him a boldness like nothing else. Jesus is our example. If we are his disciples, if we are followers of Jesus, we look to follow his perfect example of what it means for us to walk with God. Jesus can do this because his identity and purpose are crystal clear. Church, you can respond differently when you know that you are a Christian, when you are a follower of Jesus, made of the same spiritual stuff that Jesus was, empowered by the same Spirit, guided by the same relationship with our Father in heaven. That when we face challenges, we know our identity. We know who we belong to. We know the end of the story because we know to whom we belong. Church, we are called to bring peace, to bring truth, to bring love, and to bring compassion to the challenges of the world around us. You might be thinking, well, Jesus knew who he was and where he was going. I'm not so sure. And, and part of what Jesus dies to, to, to give you amongst the many, many things that come with the blessings of salvation is an identity and a purpose that you are a child of God, that you belong to your Father in heaven, that no one can snatch you from his hand, and you are secure in that position. That is your identity. Above everything else that you might build your life on, let me encourage you to, to allow that to be the cornerstone of your existence. You don't trust anything else to build your identity on other than the fact that you are loved by God, that you are a child adopted into his family, given all the benefits and blessings of, of a child of his, beloved and valued. That anything less than that is not true. That that is the reality of the identity that Jesus has died to give you. Anything else is an imitation or a lie looking to rob you of all that Jesus has done. And friends, you have a purpose. That we are disciples of our rabbi Jesus. That we are to follow his example and live out what he's called us to do. That if you're struggling to know what your purpose in life is, let me say it's, it's, it's both incredibly complex and ridiculously simple. See what Jesus did and do what Jesus did. See what he did and go and do it. That Jesus called you to bring peace and compassion and love into the situations that you walk in. So wherever you find yourself, on Sunday afternoon or Monday morning or whatever day throughout the week, your purpose comes from your identity. 
that your identity as a child of God, beloved and brought into that family, and your purpose flows from that to bring the kingdom of God, to demonstrate the love of your Savior, to bring every blessing that he has brought into your life into the world around you. That you have an identity and you have a purpose. And as a result, you should have a boldness and a confidence in when you do that because it is not rooted in what other people think, what other people want, what other people say, but it is rooted in the identity that your heavenly Father has given you. And church, this is only possible when we trust that to be true. That, that is the... That is what faith means. Faith is not believing things just because we're told to. Faith is not just, just accepting things that we're told and kind of seeing if it was. Faith is trust. And trust is built on relationship. That the currency of trust is experience. That we trust our Heavenly Father because He has shown us something that is true. And, and the problem is trust, I think, is elastic. And that the nature of that trust explains how much it will or will not stretch. But what I think faith is, faith is stretching the elasticity of our trust. Faith, faith is allowing that, allowing whatever stretch there is in the relationship we have with God to bring us just a little bit further than we are naturally comfortable with. God trusts us a worrying amount. Sometimes I wish God trusted me less with what he has. God has given us, each of us, responsibilities, a calling, a direction, a path, and a purpose. And the problem is to get there, it requires that, that uncomfortable stretching of all that God has placed in us. God calls us to grow by stretching us out of our comfort. And, and part of that stretching process begins to mold us and shape us into the image of Jesus, our Master. I want to say a quick note here on Peter because I love this part of the story. I love, I love the Apostle Peter because he's, he's, he's not like me. And, and there's so much in him that I value and that I, that I treasure. He's, he's just willing to go and get stuff done. You know, and, and so many of us, if you're like me, are like, well, let me see how this plays out first. Let me, let me do a little bit of reading, a little bit of study, see where I can fit, and I'll kind of contribute something meaningful to, to, to the whole situation. Peter's just like, I'm here, I'm going to do something. I might cut somebody's ear off, but I'm going to do something, and my name will be in the book. Right? You don't see Thaddeus cutting people's ears off, right? Peter, Peter is the one who gets the airtime because Peter is the one who's willing to show up and do something. Peter sees what is happening, and he freaks out. And the reason that Peter freaks out is because he still doesn't see what is going on. He still doesn't understand what Jesus is doing. Peter still sees with, with that kind of earthly vision of what is going on around him. He's like, they're trying to take Jesus. Well, I'm not going to let that happen. I'm going to cut somebody's servant's ear off, and that will solve the problem. Peter just doesn't see what is going on. And again and again, you'll see it in the Gospels. Peter speaks up, and Jesus has to talk him down. Jesus, Jesus has to tell him, Peter, you don't see with the eyes of faith. You're still thinking about problems in a way that you think you can fix them. You still think about the things and the purposes of God in, 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 the, in this way that you're going to solve it with earthly solutions. 
So many of the people of Jesus' day were expecting a Messiah to come, to fight and to kill the enemies of God's people, and to bring liberation and freedom that way. So many of them were expecting Jesus to arrive in Jerusalem for that Passover, where, where, where potentially as many as a million people would gather for that, that significant day, for that festival, that most important festival of the Jewish calendar. That that was the point where Jesus was going to reveal himself in, in all his glory, gather his people, gather God's people together to throw the Romans out of the city and to establish this, this earthly kingdom like the kingdom of King David. And that was so many of them were hoping and expecting for that. And, and so no wonder Peter is carrying a sword because Peter sees like that and he thinks, this is what God is going to do and I'm going to be there and I'm going to start chopping ears off as soon as it happens. Just Jesus says, put... Put the sword away. In, in, in Matthew's retelling of this story, Matthew records Jesus as, with those that take the sword shall die by the sword. He says, if you want to fight your battles on an earthly level, you're going to get earthly results. And so often the church has resorted to this plan that they're going to fight, they're going to fight for the things of Jesus on earthly levels. They're going to take up the sword and make it happen. And they're operating in, in the way that Peter does here instead of the way that Jesus does. That Jesus says, the way that I am going to overcome the world, the way that I am going to overcome the enemies of God is not through raising an army and taking them to the sword, but is dying for them, giving my own life and bringing them into the family of God. That the way that God conquers is not through warfare and through armies and through bloodshed, but only the blood of his son given up for his enemies, that his enemies would be made his family. Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? In Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew 26, 42, when Jesus is praying in Gethsemane, it says, when he went away a second time and prayed, my Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. The old King James says, if... if, if um, If there's any other way that this cup would pass from me, yet not my will, but yours. Jesus sees what is before him. And the expression that he uses here, this shall not this cup that the Father has given me, this cup, and you can think, well, what, what on earth is Jesus talking about here? What, what is the cup that Jesus is speaking of. And it's, it's difficult to pin this down exactly, but there's an expression that you see in some of the, the, the prophets. I think it's in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 51, just before the suffering servant story in Isaiah 52. And in Isaiah 51 and in Jeremiah 25, it talks about the cup of the wrath of God. It talks about the anger of God that burns against the injustice of the world. That God's judgment on the nations, that, 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 that everything that stands against the, the, the love and the justice of God is, is signified in this cup. And as the Old Testament prophets reflect on this idea of, of God's anger against the sin of this world, build up. Their expectation is that the nations will drink this cup 
and therefore will, will see their own ruin and destruction. The expectation is in the Old Testament that, that the anger of God that is built up against the rebellion of mankind will eventually be poured out on them and they will get what they deserve, that God's justice will be achieved that way. And that was, for many, that was the expectation of this passage, of this understanding of, of how can a loving and righteous God look upon this world with anything other than judgment and justice that surely the wrath of God, the anger of God, the justice of God was building against the world and eventually would be poured out. And yet Jesus says, I must take that cup, that I will drink it down to the last drop in order to reverse what was done in Eden, in order to remove the division between God and humanity, in order to bring true and total forgiveness, I will drink that cup. The cup signifies what Jesus has come to do, to take on the sin of the world, to take on the sin of you and of me, and to bring us into that full relationship with God, that Jesus drinks that cup to the last drop for us. Is there a cup right now that you are called to drink? And this is a, this is a difficult thing to, to reflect on. It's a, it's a difficult idea for us to hold. But, but just as Jesus showed obedience, that obedience to God in trial brings forth salvation, that, that, that idea of Gethsemane, the wine press, that the, that the pressure that the world longs to put us under can actually bring forth the blessing of God, is it possible for us, maybe right now or maybe in times in the future, that we are experiencing something that requires us to endure with grace instead of anger? With a quiet, controlled confidence that comes from our identity in God rather than desperation and panic and confusion? Maybe for some of us, there is a, there is a difficult person in our life that we are called to love. Maybe there's a season of pain and difficulty that we are called to endure. Maybe there's forgiveness that we've been asked to extend and leave behind bitterness. I don't want to I don't prescribe the situation in your life. And I, don't want to, I certainly don't want to say this is, this is how it is meant to be because everything in God's Word longs to call us back into the, the, the family and relationship with God where, where pain and suffering and, and the misery that we experience in this life is not part of God's intention for us. And yet, if we're followers of Jesus, if we are disciples of of Jesus, if we are looking to live through the example that Jesus has laid out for us, is it possible that this season, this trial, this difficulty is one that God is asking you to endure as Jesus endured for your good and for his glory? That Jesus leads us calling us not to desperate anger like Peter responded in, but to confidence that is powerful. Like Jesus, not avoiding the pain, but walking through the pain to bring glory to God and bring forgiveness to many. 
that as followers of Jesus, we have this unavoidable paradigm in front of us that God brought glory through the worst possible things. That the greatest act of, of evil and tragedy in the world, the, 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 the betrayal, the, 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 the execution of the spotless Son of God given for us, that Jesus came down to bring us into relationship with God, and the response that he received was, was, was not only uh, being, being dismissed or, or, or despised, but was being captured, tortured, and executed. And yet through one of the worst possible things, God has brought the greatest possible thing. Church, I don't want to speak in absolutes right now, but is it possible that right now God is leading us through a season that feels like that, that, that press, feels like the world is, is pressing down on us. Maybe we've lost control. Maybe we're uncertain about where things are going. Maybe we don't know what on earth is the point in all of this. Again, I don't want to speak with certainty, but what if in this situation God is longing to speak to you? God is longing to draw something of Jesus out of you. That in that olive press, what would flow out of that would be the blessing and the anointing of God for you in this situation and for those around you. Church, that we would prepare in prayer. That that would, that would lay the groundwork before us. We would ground our identity in Him. That we would know to whom we belong to. We would know our identity and we would be confident of our purpose. That that identity and purpose doesn't eliminate us from, from trial or challenge or difficulty, but it tells us who we are to be when we go through those times. And that as we are going through those times, which I know many of us are, that we trust in the power and the example of Jesus. That even in the worst things, God can do the greatest. Church, can I invite you to, if, if you're able just to stand a moment, we'll, we'll respond in, 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 in song and in worship in just a second. But I want to pray for us. Jesus, we take this moment and we recognize who you are for us, what you did for us. That, Lord, this isn't just a story. This isn't just some, uh, some encouraging spiritual truth in, in a kind of a fuzzy, warming sense. But, but, Lord, this is what you have done. This is what you endured. This is what you chose for us. That, Jesus, your intention is we would be the recipients of the blessing that comes through your pressing. That Jesus, as you were nailed to that cross, as you, as you endured that punishment, God, it wasn't simply one person being killed, but it was the spotless Son of God drinking the cup for us. Jesus, my prayer is for for those of us who in this, in this season, in this moment right now, Lord, it, it feels, feels like chaos, feels like loss, feels like confusion, feels like uncertainty, whatever the, 
the challenge we face right now, God, is we are, we are being pressed. That, God, we don't have the answers. That we don't know what's around the corner. God, my, my prayer for, for each and every one of us in that moment right now. God, we, we, we do pray for release. We pray for freedom. We pray for, for struggles to end and for these, these challenges to be brief. But God, what we, what we ask just as emphatically is while we are there in that moment, that Jesus, you would keep us close to yourself. God, we would know the truth of who you are. That God, that would be, that would genuinely be enough for us in this moment. That, God, we wouldn't have answers, we wouldn't have solutions, we wouldn't have fixes. But, but, Jesus, the truth would be that knowing you, knowing who you are for us and to us, knowing our identity in you would genuinely be enough right now. And God, we don't say that in, a, in an empty or platitudinal way, but, God, but the deep knowing of who you are for us would genuinely be enough. Jesus, just as you said in that moment that, that you have not lost one of those you gave to me. God, there would, be a, there would be a truth to those of us in that season right now that, that, that you have not let go of us. That, Jesus, we might feel lost, but you have not lost us. God, that we may feel like we've let go in this time, but you have not let go. Holy Spirit, I pray in this moment you would give us that confidence. You would give us a boldness that, not, that doesn't come from our own earthly knowledge or our awareness of our situation, but a knowledge that is rooted in heavenly places. But an understanding and an insight that sits in Jesus as he sits on the right hand of the Father. God, that our confidence is not in the things around us. Our confidence is not in the things of this world. But God, we would have that quiet, unshakable boldness that comes from knowing that we are yours. And so God, I pray, I pray again that God, you would, you would remove the burdens from us, that you would, you would give us freedom and liberation for the challenges that we face right now, God, that you would, you would, you would bring us back to a, uh, to, a, to a good and fruitful place. God, we long for your goodness and your blessings in our life, God. But God, let us be in love with you first, more than in love with comfort or ease or stability. God, we long for comfort and ease and stability, but Jesus, let our desire be you and you foremost. God, it is, it is painful and difficult to ask that. But God, your, your word demonstrates the truth of that heart cry. That God, what is best is to know and be known by Jesus. Lord, I, I pray that that reality would, would flow out of our hearts like like rushing water, that, that it would bubble up from a, from a deep place within us that we maybe thought long gone. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to find out more about us, please visit our website, capcitycardiff.org.uk.